Welcome to another episode of North of the Shire, your podcast about all things Lord of the Rings and the Middle-Earth strategy battle game. Hey everybody, Don here, and I'm here with Andrew. Uh, in episode two, our main topic for this show will be on social contracts among gamers. Uh, and if this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Yeah, social contracts. I'm super excited to talk about this. I feel like it's, before you even play the game, you need to have a good understanding of what the social contract is. I know it's it's a very sort of different sort of a, a topic for us to be talking about. Before we get into that, how are you doing? I haven't seen or talked to you for a while now. I know uh, it's been ages. It almost feels like. Uh, unfortunately for me, I'd love to have this grandiose tale of saying uh, how many models I've painted or how many books I've read or poetry I've written of Middle Earth strategy battle game. Unfortunately, that's not the case. <laughs> uh, it's more uh, work and um, staying focused on other things, real life, unfortunately. But there yeah. is one thing I'm super excited about. I got a new mic. You know, thank goodness. Thank goodness. I feel <laughs> uh, if you made it through the first episode, I'm really impressed and really appreciate the dedication already you've you've committed to this podcast. Not to mention the savings and time on me trying to edit all of that noise out. Oh my god. Yeah, there was there was a fair amount and I'm just like I think I listened to it after about three hours of you editing and I'm just like, okay, there's still some stuff to go and you're like I've been editing this for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, in regards to the hobby stuff, I know what you mean. I know you're like very busy at work and we've actually had quite a bit of stuff going on in, uh, in our, our group, the OSBGL, of which Andrew and I are both on the admin team for, so we get busy doing stuff with that as well. And I think this time around, uh, we just had a bunch of stuff happen, and uh, there's five of us on the admin team. One one guy is uh, traveling for family business and was pretty unavailable, and the other three guys are, are all working full-time, and some of them are busier than normal, including you, Andrew. Mm -hmm. I think I'm the only one, of, well, out of those four anyway that um is working like a reduced schedule so like when all this stuff was just recently happening it's like kind of like okay who wants to do this and it's just crickets and i'm like well i guess i'm the guy right now that has some free time so in the last week i found myself writing up a lot of uh uh bulletins and notifications and yep. <laughs> for different things to do with the group the, the funny thing was, I remember when we first started talking about North of the Shire podcast, and we're like, okay, because this is, the I want to add certain elements to this, like talk tactical discussions and that kind of thing. Uh, what I'll do is I'll take care of the editing, and then you can just sort of join in as the guest. And then it, f it very quickly <laughs> evolved to, Don will yeah, do the right. editing. <laughs> 
let's see how that goes. Yeah, it didn't last long, unfortunately. <laughs> it's by the way, it's super fun editing and Soundtrap. I will admit, um, a lot easier than I thought it would be. Yeah, it's not bad. It took me a while uh, to sort of figure it out, but I found that being used to like I've learned how to do uh, video editing, so that helped helped a lot in, in picking up the uh, the editing of, of this software or program or whatever mm -hmm. website. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, back to the hobby stuff. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we finally came to the regrettable conclusion after five long agonizing months that we would cancel the OSBGL 2020 season. So that was really kind of unfortunate and sad, but kind of knew it was coming. But Well, I think we, we, we canceled the remaining events. We didn't disqualify the previous, the first two. I mean, those are pretty yeah. critical events. People have, you know, got their feet wet with a new edition, so to speak. Uh, and we wanted those uh, those scores to count, especially since you're actually in the lead of the league <laughs> at the beginning yeah. of 2020. And I think the other thing was um, we just want to sort of tag it on to the 2021 league whenever that starts up. And I think... Yeah, like you say, it was only two, two results, so it won't be hard um, if... You know, if something happens and we can start up, uh, you know, in say October, November, December, we'll start the 2021 season early mm -hmm. and tag those on. If we end up starting late, we can still tag them on. Uh, hopefully it works out well. Exactly. I, I think the other reason, I mean, I think for me anyways, for why we um, sort of shied away from resuming the league is because one, social distancing makes it impossible to actually play a game of... Um, a game of MESBG uh, with any sort of um, normalcy uh, and ease, right? Uh, and I think the other thing is, like we're like I know I am because my wife is in um, in the government and emergency management. We watch the the COVID number of case counts every day, and they fluctuate so quickly that it's just mm -hmm. like it, you just can't run a league then like stop it one month and then start it back up again it's just such a difficult thing to do with managing expectations and having any sort of uh, normalcy or enjoyment and i think i think the thing is too that we're at a point now where it is possible to get a game it is possible and it under controlled circumstances you can actually have a safe game and maintain your social distancing and here in in Canada and Ontario, we're we're stuck at two meters social distancing. There's no no condition where it can be lower than that. So, nope. um, you know, if you're playing a game, you know, with uh, with a couple of buddies in your backyard, or like even at if you reserve space at a store, um, that's fine. But when you when you get into you know 20, 30 people. Uh, in a tournament, it becomes you lose control. You lose control of it, and it mm -hmm. becomes a lot more difficult to to keep that keep true to that social distancing. And the and the and the other thing too is is that although we really don't want to cancel the season, um, we don't have to run league tournaments. There are other games happening there are small tournaments being run at some stores so there is opportunity out there to game without us having to take a risk and try to start the league up right so i guess this you know you've you've 
beautifully segued into the next section. So Don, what has the OSBGL done now that we can't run tournaments for the rest of the year? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first thing we've done is we've carried everybody's membership over for free into the 2021 season. So there you go. If you're a paid member of our league, uh, which we offer a paid membership and give certain perks, um, that is going to carry over to 2021. So that's the first thing. Pretty big. Uh, the second thing is that we we all agreed that we wanted to do something to keep people engaged in the hobby um, over the next few months, however months it may be. Mm-hmm. So what we've decided to do is to start running monthly contests. So these can be miniature painting, paint a, a single miniature, paint a uh, you know a unit or uh, any any creative thing make a piece of terrain make a display board uh write a short story whatever and we're gonna we're gonna get um volunteer members of our group to to run those Mm -hmm. and we actually stepped up to run the first one and that is um basically the same group that runs this podcast we also run a tournament called canadian shire pretty much and so we're we're sponsoring the first event which which will be for the balance of september and it's basically a painting contest for painting one single miniature which must be a foot model on a 25 millimeter base so pretty basic uh beginning uh, well, I think I think it's pretty important that we start small and work our way up. We don't want to be like, okay, everybody, we're going to be doing a Helm's Deep diorama for the first shot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and then you know, we're going to give away some uh, some little uh, awards and stuff for uh, people that participate and do well. And kind of, we've kind of got it broken up into two categories. One category is for our paid members, mm-hmm. and another category is for everybody else. So, exactly. And I was very happy when I just came home about half an hour ago mm-hmm. that there was a nice big box waiting for me at the front door, and it's more PLA for my 3D printer. So there you go. I'll be able to print the trophies or awards. Perfect. I mean, it would be pretty terrible to have a painting award and yeah. be like, hey, that trophy, we'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's everything with regards to, uh, you know, catching up. So I think we should probably move into our main topic. Let's do it. Okay, so yeah, so we're talking about the social contract today. And I think it's really important that we have that discussion um, first outside of the, the thoughts on the meta, which was episode one. Because anytime you want to have a game with your opponent, whether it be a pickup game or whether it be a tournament game, there has to be, there's that implicit or almost un, undefined but defined topic of the social contract. And at its bare bones, it's essentially you and your opponent are here to play a game for an indeterminate amount of time, could be an hour, could be two hours, with the ultimate goal of having fun. And it's your job, and conversely your opponent's job, to ensure that everyone at the table also has fun, right? So even though it's a tournament game, and I'll talk about this for both tournament and pickup game, and it is a competitive um, you know, atmosphere, it's really important that everyone has fun when they play it. Otherwise, what's the point of playing a game 
that's not fun. I mean, it's not like there's cash prizes or something like that, you know, like Magic the Gathering and that kind of thing where you can make a job out of it. This is a way for us to kick back and relax and just blow off some steam. Yeah, there's a competitive element to it, but you don't want to rob someone else's experience at the, you know, at the, to, to sort of for your own enjoyment. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of this kind of thing goes unspoken between two players. Uh, some of it is assumed in individual communities. They have their certain way of doing things or handling rules or disputes or whatever. Um, but I find myself that when, when I'm playing um, mostly against competitive players, that a lot of them will like to go over the table and define certain things. So, you know, that's a really good way of like getting certain issues out and, and discussing them before the game starts. But there's a lot more to it than, than just um, miniatures on the table or terrain or spacing or that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So some of the factors to consider would be your army list. Right, So you and your opponent are agreeing or attesting to that your army list is designed based on the rules of the game within the defined point values established for whether it be a pickup game or whether it be from the, the tournament organizer. Right, So if the TO says a game is 600 points, your army list is not going above 600 points. And no one should really have to double check that. You should make sure that you've, you, you're, you're abiding by the rules of that and that your army list fits all the criteria for factions, alliance levels, points levels, and other sort of specific tournament requirements that may exist, like uh, maximum model count, which is what we've seen some tournaments sort of comp. Yeah, and these are, um, I, I would say that these are almost outside the social contract. These are within like the guidelines of a tournament, but basically you're, your your social contract part of this is that you're following the rules for creating an army as outlined by an individual tournament pack. Mm -hmm. And then, well, the rules themselves. I think there's a there's an element of the social contract where we want to say you're 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 almost attesting as you sign this invisible document that you have knowledge, whether it be um, basic advanced knowledge of. All the rules in, the, in all the rule books, uh, especially the rules of your own army, and, and that way you're not unintentionally um, going to make a mistake or cheat, right? By not knowing the rules, there's times where we may not remember, like subparagraph six of page sixty-five. But when you're making pretty egregious mistakes because you've not bothered to read the rules, you're doing your opponent a big injustice. Yeah, like there's a certain um, assumption that you're going to have a reasonable idea of how your army plays, uh, especially at a tournament. Uh, it's, it's a very different thing if you're playing a pickup game versus a tournament game. In a pickup game, it's easy to, to handle that part of it. You just tell your opponent, look, this is the first time I've played this army. I've only skimmed the rules, so you know, bear with me. Uh, that's a completely different kettle of fish than being in a tournament and saying, uh, you know, I've never played this army before. Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's going to take me a really long time every time I go to do my turn. You know, that's not really acceptable at, at a tournament. You're expected to at least have a reasonable idea how uh, how your army works. 
Right. Now, that's not to say um, you can't be new to the game and coming to play. And just being like, hey, it's my first time playing this, my first tournament. I've only played like maybe a half dozen games. That's totally fine as long as, you know, you maintain a, a reasonably decent pace of play, right? But uh, even in those situations, you definitely want to let your opponent know. That way they they have expectations ahead of time that you're a new player, right? Because if they don't know, they're going to get very frustrated. But if they do know, then they can help you out with the rules. And that way the whole game progresses at a, at a proper pace. And this is one where I think people are a little shy on because it's sort of, it's like the first level of confrontation and that's asking for clarification. And, you know, this is an element of the social contract where if you don't understand your opponent's army or the models, then the onus is on you to ask them so that they can clarify it for you. Because if at the end of the day, they make an unintentional mistake and you didn't ask, then that's on you. Because the TO, again, assuming this is a tournament here, the TO is going to ask you, why didn't you ask your opponent this during the game instead of waiting until the end? Because in almost all situations, if there is um, um, a chance where um, unintentional uh, mistakes or what people can construe as cheating happens and it's not addressed until the end of the game, you can't address it at all. So addressing it in the moment by asking for clarification is really critical. And you know we're, we're, we're creating an environment here. Um, the, the environment of the social contract is the environment of asking. Yeah, I've, I've got a really good example that I cite a little bit later on, uh, mm-hmm. and it speaks to that exact point. So we'll, we'll come to that in a little bit. Right. And I'll make a special note, especially as it pertains to Middle Earth strategy battle game, and that's might, will, fate, and wounds. Right. So you have your resources that your characters have, and your opponent has their resources. Now, you can go two ways about this. You can track yours, and they can track theirs. Or you can track yours and theirs. But what ends up happening is if they have their numbers, their resource counts written down, and you think they didn't tick off a resource, like use up a point of might here or there, and you're not tracking it, unfortunately, you have to abide by however which way uh, your opponent has written their resources. And... Let me tell you, that is incredibly detrimental, especially if you're playing at a top table game. Uh, the difference in an extra point of might uh, that wasn't checked off it could be the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, maybe maybe that's why I uh, I don't do all that fantastic because like I never track my opponents. No uh, stats like that. No, um, and like I find for me, like I try, I always try to write down. Uh, who I'm playing, what the mission was, what their army was, what the victory points were, and just that alone. Like, what I often do now is on the back of my army list, like I'll make notes, like a little spot for notes where I can can put down that critical stuff uh, on the back. But like for me, um, being of a slightly older 
generally. <laughs> like, I, I can't remember all of this stuff. Like, the rules, like, uh, missions, like, this stat, that stat, this rule, all that stuff going on. Like, and then track my opponent stuff on top. Forget it. It's not going to happen. The funny thing is, I won't always track um, the resources. It really comes down on opponent by opponent level because if I look at some opponents and I'm like, they're just here to have fun. There's really no point. Uh, but other opponents who I know are top table players, I'm like busting out the piece of paper and the pen. Who are your heroes? What are their stats? We're going to have one of those games. Not to be a jerk, but because I know it, it may come down to accurate tracking of might, will, fate, and wounds as a determination between who wins well, and who it's loses. A, it's a super important thing. And, you know, even like you said, one point of might can easily win you the game. So. Yep. For you super competitive types, it's a really important consideration. Oh, yeah. Uh, the next part, um, I think this part is probably, in my opinion, the most important. And that is communication and intention. When you're building the social contract, it is critical that you have both strong communication and open and transparent intention. So what I mean by that is uh, for communication, it's clear and concise so your opponent understands what is going on at all times. And I get this can be difficult in a tournament with 40, 50, even 150 players. The amount of noise is like pretty crazy. But you know when you're doing things like shooting a bunch of archers at your opponent, you need to be clear as to who is shooting and what models they're targeting so that dice aren't being thrown and your opponent's being blindsided as to what's going on. Because there may be situations where you do that and your opponent's like, wait, they can't actually see this person or they can't, um, or they can't actually, um, there's like two or three in the ways. And so what ends up happening here is you may have rolled the dice and they're really good numbers, right? Like 90% chance to hit, like that's what the dice say. And you go, oh, okay, then I guess I'll shoot these guys over here. Or you could have those opponents who roll really badly and say, oh, you know what, I'll just re-roll it. You know, you, you create these situations where you don't want to be in. And so it's really important that, um, that we, you have strong communication, both clear and concise. Yeah, the, the one time that I find like that kind of thing happens a lot, and you mentioned this, is like when someone's rolling dice really fast, mm -hmm. is like, you know, there's there's slow play and then there's fast play in any of these games. And when you get into like, again, mostly against a competitive player and the time's running down, they tend to speed up their level of play, especially if they're losing the game. And I have been in many games where my opponent is like, pointing and rolling dice so rapidly that like even I like a sp experienced player very experienced player like I lose track of like okay what are you doing who is who is attacking who's shooting what what's mm -hmm. happening right now you're just rolling dice and I don't understand what's happening so but you have to actually stop the person from doing it and say look at you need to slow it down a bit and like let me know what you're doing I know time's getting tight but like I still have to understand what's happening yeah 
you know, and that really sort of drives the whole point of pace of play, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, and having a good, strong pace of play so that you don't run into those, there's five minutes left and we got to go situations, which yeah. I know I've been in both on the on the receiving end and on the uh, you know pushing end, um, but not from the, a malicious perspective. It's more of, I mean, from my examples, it, it's more of there's you know six minutes left and we have to move seven models each. It don't won't take more than a minute and a half kind of deal. But anyways, let's get back um, to the main point of communication and intention, and that is intent. And determining intent is probably one of the most important aspects of the social contract. And it's so vitally important because it resolves issues before they even occur. And I'll give you an example. Let's say two battle lines are getting very close and first combat is potentially like looming. And you're pre-measuring, because you can pre-measure, and you're measuring things out and you're saying, well, my battle line is, I want to move them exactly a half inch away from your big hero so your big hero can't charge. If you don't... Like six and a half inches away. Exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, So if you don't outline, this is my intent to move my model so that they are six and a half inches away from your hero, assuming your hero only moves six inches, your opponent's hero only moves six inches. If you don't outline that intent, what could end up happening is twofold. One, your opponent may overmeasure how far their hero can move, and all of a sudden they've moved the model, you don't know where its original position was, you can't say anything, and now their big hero's in combat with you and you didn't want that. Or two, and this does happen, one of your models was accidentally bumped. Or the mat upon which your models sit is folded a little bit, which does happen because we do play with a lot of felt mats, right? And I'm just saying the number of times I've seen a model accidentally bumped is so common, it's ridiculous, and it creates those situations. So if you say right up the front, right up front, this is my intent, then that gives your opponent that opportunity to pull up their, uh, their, their tape measure and measure themselves to even say, hey, actually, if that's your intent, you're too close, you got to back up. So all yeah. of a sudden, we're cutting off those problems before they even begin. Yeah, and if, if someone does that, um, like if I'm playing a game with them and, and they actually, even for me, if they don't actually verbalize that, but it's obvious to me, and let's say stuff does get jostled and then my turn comes along, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you intended this guy to be more than six inches away from me, correct? Mm-hmm. And then they'll be like, yes. And I was like, okay, no problem. Um, but like the, the one thing that gets me that you, ha- you see a lot um, that happens and, and it's the jostling of models, the moving of models um, is like in this game, you can pre-measure. So pre-measure Remeasure your brains out, mm-hmm. right? But don't keep picking up your model and moving it and then putting it back and then moving it somewhere else and then putting it back. Because every time you do that, it's not going back in exactly the same spot. Mm-hmm. And like I've seen people do this so many times and you know, after they do it once, twice, three times, the model is like half inch away from where it was originally sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so like 
that's not cool in my books and if you want to take some extra time pre-measuring like go for it and i guess like for me i'm a chess player um and so like you take your hand off your piece you're done yeah right that's it so like don't move your guy until you know where he's going to go and then once you once you've taken your hand off him that's it right that that's kind of the way i do it mm-hmm. um if if i ever have a time where I want to redo something, I will ask my opponent's permission. Like, look, you know, after I've done that, I realize now that I I actually want to do something different. Would you mind if I move somewhere else? If not, no big deal. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two ways I have seen this um, done where you get the benefits of the pre-measure plus you also get the ability to sort of visual or even see where your model would be. And that is, bring a couple extra models that are not a part of your army that are on the various base sizes. So when you measure out your six inches, eight inches, 10 inches, put this extra model down that's not in the army, and that'll show you where your model's gonna end up. Yeah, that that one's a really good one to do when you're like running around another model. So Mm -hmm. you're like, you're bending like 180 degrees or more like circuit around something is really hard to measure with a tape or even a, you know, a measuring stick or whatever. Um, Doing that is is a great way of handling that. Yeah, uh, there's that one. And then the other one is I've seen people use, if there's gonna be a really tight charge, right? Between control zones and avoiding them, Pull out six of the 25 mils, because it's effectively an inch, and start putting them down, touching side by side to get to where you want to go. And you'll eventually either touch the model you want to charge or don't. And it's like the most empirical way of figuring out whether you can make it or not. I have seen top table players, and I've done it myself, many a times measure out a contentious charge because their opponent says, nope, you don't have enough. And like I, I might say that to my opponent. And they say to me, I do, let me show you. And they put down all of these, these dead models that they have, yeah. and they've measured it out. And they said, yep, yeah, I can get there. And to me, I see that right in front of me, and I said, yeah, you can, you're good, don't worry, make the charge. Can't can't be denied. Exactly. So that's why intention is just so important. Intention avoids mistakes up front, so don't be afraid to keep declaring the intent. It's better to over-communicate than under-communicate. Very rarely is is it worse to over-communicate something. You can tell you're like a corporate guy. You're in the corporate world. It's really like an HR document here. Hey, you know, I talk from the perspective of a top table player who has been <laughs> on those top tables, and you never, ever want to leave yourself open to that opportunity where your opponent calls you on something. Because, yeah, you might have made that mistake, but guess what it's going to do? It's going to rattle your self-confidence just a little bit. And all of a sudden, all those other moves you're going to make are going to be slightly on the conservative side. And you might be costing yourself fractions of an inch, which may end up losing you the game later on. Right? Yep, you're absolutely right. Now, the next one is the not-so-fun part of the social contract. And that's ensuring your opponent honors the social contract. And what I mean by that is, if you think your opponent has done something incorrectly, you need to call them on it. 
to keep them honest because like 99% of the time it's unintentional. I have been playing miniature games for, oh geez, 21, 22 years. And I can count the number of times on one hand where someone has done something intentionally with the perspective of cheating. And I've probably played over a thousand games. Like if someone makes a mistake, it's unintentional. They didn't mean to. They either overmeasured by mistake because of the angle in which they were looking over the model, or they picked up a model and put it back and that afforded them an extra half inch, which allowed them to make the charge. These things are unintentional. We get it. They all make or, mistakes. Or they're just playing fast, right? If you're mm-hmm. paying... If you're playing flat, fast and loose and you're, you're not putting your measuring device down every time you move a model, which is fine. I don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, the odd time you're going to you're going to be moving more than, you know, six inches or whatever your movement is. It just happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So to avoid all these accusations of cheating or that more importantly, that sour feeling at the end of, of a game by being cheated. Oh, man, I, I've been there myself because I didn't follow my gut and say something. And at the end of the game, I've realized this person made a mistake and I don't know if it would have cost him the game, but just knowing that that mistake was there and it was unintentional, but it should have been called out, you just get that sour feeling in your gut saying, I did everything I could and potentially that mistake cost me the game and that gnaws at you. To me, the, the the biggest thing here is is it, it's mostly all happens during the movement phase. Mm-hmm. It, it's placement, it's placement and movement of models. Where, like in my opinion, you get ninety percent of this kind of issue happen. Yeah, and let's be honest. Yeah, movement is the most important aspect of this game because it is the part of the game where dice play zero effect have zero impact on, right? Um, Now, ignoring jump tests, swim tests, and all that kind of stuff, I'm talking movement and positioning is where you will have the most impact in a game because, let's be honest, more often than not, you're playing an objective-based game and you have to move to get on objectives, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that there is, if there's such an impact on the game, mistakes might be happening unintentionally for all the things we've talked about. Um, you know, and we, we also sort of one of the couple of examples that we've, we've already talked about is that bending tape measure component. Oh, man, the, the, the opportunity for adding inches when you bend a tape measure around a corner. It's almost as if your your infantry model moves at the pace of a cavalry model in these particular cases. <laughs> you know, it's clearly unintentional, but it happens and yeah. call your opponent on it. And I'm, it, I'm sure someone out there has designed a widget for for uh, moving your models like around uh, corners and yeah. around other models and stuff. Oh yeah, and, and you know, the OSBGL has their own custom widgets that you can pick up, movement devices, movement aids, um, that make it a little bit easier because, you know, the, the, the movement aids got several different, um, I guess, distances sort of mapped out on it. And it makes it a lot easier when you're moving something versus uh, trying to bend a tape measure, which is not really supposed to bend in the first place. Especially if there's a huge scrum of like 20 or 30 models that are all clustered together, it becomes very difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another uh, example I really wanted to bring up is models with the fly keyword. I know this was really prevalent in the last edition, 
to some degree not so much this edition just because you don't see too many models with fly. Um, but when people with fly, i.e. ring race on fell beasts, uh, decide to hop your lines to attack a hero from behind that they've cast transfix on, and they're like, oh, I can make it look 12 inches. More often than not, I've seen them try to do it. And I'm like, your base is still sitting on my back rank. Well, yeah. yes, there's a conceivable 12 inches here. You just don't fit, you know? And so, again, yeah, call them out. It's not, it's not 12 inches plus the plus the size of your base. It's just 12 inches. It's just 12 inches, yeah. Um, the other one is the shooting phase and the number of, um, they downplay the number of in the ways where you may have like a dozen guys that you want to shoot, you want to fast roll all at once because the game is coming down to it. And you're like, I'm going to shoot all of these guys at your hero. And you know, they most of them have like one in the way. But when you start breaking it down, you're like, hold on a second. Some of these guys have two in the ways. Some of them have three in the ways. Let's slow this down and let's figure out how many models have what number of in the ways? Yeah, and that's like people play in the way so differently from oh person to person. Yes. So th that's actually a good one to identify before the game even starts. Like, what do you consider an in the way? Do you consider this example in the way? No. Okay, fine. Do you consider this in the way? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because some people treat line of sight, um, you know, for some reason differently in that some parts of the body count towards line of sight, other parts don't. It does spell it out in the rule book. Uh, no limbs, no hands, no legs. Uh, just not, not the legs, but no no arms, no weapons, you know. Um, no wings. I no wings is another one. Arms might just be, sorry, no weapons, that kind of thing. Um, but anyways, yeah, so it, it spells it out fairly well in the rule book. Just stick to it. Um, yeah. And the third one is the assault phase. And the number one unintentional mistake I see is backing away when you lose a fight. You must back away a full inch. And I see people just be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna back away. And I'm like, that's like a quarter of an inch. Can you just measure that out? And why it's so important is if your opponent can't back away a full inch in a single direction, not bending it around stuff, they are trapped. And when you trap a model, you know, as, other podcasts have said traps win games. So keep your opponents really um, honest when it comes to those backaways. Absolutely. That's like such a huge thing. And, um, you know, not being a uh, living encyclopedia of the rule book, is it still a thing where you have to back directly away from the model? Because I know like everybody plays that with like a grain of salt. Like, no, you must move a full inch in any direction. Um, even though you are not technically an inch away from the model, like you could technically move horizontally, which won't put you a full inch away from the model, as long as you're moving a full inch. Okay, um, so it's not directly away, it's just moving back away an inch. Exactly. Um, so yeah, and I see people just pick up their model and move it without even measuring. Um, and that can throw you off because you might be like, well, he was in a certain spot touching my model and it's not really an inch. And I get it, when you start nitpicking like that, it makes you look bad, but sloppy back away moves can cost games. I'll just say that. Fair enough. There's also a special note I wanna make, um, and this, this really applies more at the upper tables of a tournament, and that is aggressive play and interpretation. And what I'm referring to here is your opponent is pushing a type of rule that you feel is not correct. And they're really 
pushing it and they're saying to you, no, 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 it's right, it's right, it's right, it's in the rules. And they just keep trying to like barrel ahead. And while you might feel sort of off put to want to say something, it never hurts to say, please show me in the rules where it says that. And you can follow that phrase up with, because I want to learn, right? I want to know where it says in the rules so I can understand that rule so that I can be a better player, right? Yeah, I think it's important to uh, make sure we differentiate what we're saying here. Is like, this isn't like, don't become a rules lawyer and ask ask your opponent to show you every no. rule in the book on everything that they're trying to do. It's like, if they're doing something repeatedly and you don't think it's right and, you know, they keep they keep enforcing their understanding of it, then it's like, okay, this is not the way I understand it. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at the rules. Yeah, um, that, that's actually a great point. It sort of rolls us back to the the under um, like the, one of the first points we made about social contract, and that is having a basic understanding of the rules. Because if you start questioning your opponent on even the most basic stuff, like for example, um, we've got. Uh, multiple models are engaged in this combat and the rule is you have to break out um, as many single one-on-one -on -one combats as possible and that's a basic rule like it explains it yeah. very early on so if you start calling your opponent on that it's like well hold on a second you should know this rule it's right under the rules for um, for moving and, and duels, right? It explains it very specifically there. But if we're talking about, say, a special rule that applies to, um, I don't know, on a Corsair Reavers that only got adjusted in an FAQ, well, I may not know, I may not know that rule because I may not read the Corsair Reavers section of the FAQ. So I'm going to say, hold on, that doesn't make sense. Please explain that to me, and then you'll come back to me with, here's the FAQ that shows the ruling that Corsair Reavers get these ridiculous OP buffs. Why did you have to pick that rule as the example? Like, the most annoying rule possible. I picked it because I knew you would get a rise out of you. <laughs> like, even after reading the FAQ, I still didn't believe the answer. I'm like... You're, you're misreading the FAQ. That's not what it says. And yet... But Everybody plays it the way. Yeah, everyone plays way. it that and way. Like, oh. Which yeah. I thought was hilarious, but I had to bring it up because it, it's the reason I brought it up is because it's one of those things that if I did that at a tournament, you would be like, "What? Hold on a second, that's a ridiculous thing. I don't recall that. Please show me, right?" Yeah. And then we have that discussion. It's the most obvious one I could think of, which would be like sort of like an eye popper for your opponent. Um. So yeah, so so it's really important to to ask your opponent, and and this isn't you nitpicking, as we said, rules lawyering. Be nice about it, be friendly, but honestly, this is also an opportunity for you to gauge how interested your opponent is in honoring the intent of the social contract, because if they're not interested in showing it to you, and if you're at a tournament, call a TO over. It's the quickest and easiest way of solving this problem. Don't let it hang. Don't sort of mull about it because it will bother you and it will sort of throw your mindset off. Yeah, and like for me, the, the way I look at this kind of thing is once something's done, it's done. Mm -hmm. Like there's no backseas. So if, if my opponent does something and 
whether I agree or disagree and I don't call them on it and I accept what's happened, then it's done. It's, it's over. There, there's no going back anymore. And that's just the way I play. And, and I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, it, we're in a big tournament here in Ontario, TGX. And I was playing in one of the late round games. And I wasn't top table, but I was up there, like maybe the second or third table, um, doing well. And I was getting smashed Mm -hmm. in in the game that I was playing. My opponent was hammering me to death with shooting. I was playing dwarves. Uh, I had a lot of rangers in my army. He was playing elves. And he was just killing all my rangers with his, my defense five rangers with his strength three bows. Mm-hmm. Um, and just using heroic accuracy every turn to, to kill me. And I couldn't do anything about it, really, because I couldn't chase him down because they were mounted and blah, blah, blah. I was doing my best to fire back. Um, but he was doing the... Uh, a heroic accuracy to get around my d7 dwarves to to hit the squishy ones in behind anyway i lost the game mm-hmm. um and after the game ended we both kind of realized that uh one or more than one of his heroes didn't act even have heroic accuracy mm-hmm. uh as an option and he was very gracious about it and immediately said look let's change let's change the result we'll give you the win and, and I'll take the loss. It's not right that I take the win. I'm like, no. It's like, we're not doing that. It's like, the game's over. You know, the arrows have been fired. My dwarves are dead on the ground. Um, that issue is done. It's the game's over. So you take the mm-hmm. win. It's a good lesson for me. So like that's the way I look at it. So, like, that was bad on me. If, if I had a thought for a second, is it possible that all of those heroes can have heroic accuracy? I should have checked, right? And, and that's my fault. Right. Well, because, I mean, not, nowadays, um, not all heroes have all heroic actions. In fact, only one hero has all the heroic actions. Everyone else only has a... Who's that? A, uh, Aragorn, King LSR. Oh, really? Actually, yeah. Aragorn Strider, I think, is the only one who has all heroic actions his uh, LSR version does not have heroic accuracy, I believe. All right, now it's my turn for a point. I'm so excited. I actually added uh, to your document. I'm contributing. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> okay, and that is that you need to adjust your play uh, based on your opponent. Uh, maybe not all super competitive players will agree with with that comment, and you're you know you just win the game. And it's as simple as that. But um, there's more to it than that, especially if you're trying to grow a community like we've been trying to do here for five or six years. And that is like uh, you need to adjust your play. So like if you're playing somebody that's new to the game and you're like a really experienced, even cons- uh, like a competitive player, you might want to like take your foot off the gas a little bit and let them like just help them understand and enjoy the game because there's no quicker way to turn someone off a game who's new to the game than by just smashing them mercilessly and like not even explaining the way things work um that there's Mm -hmm. no faster way to drive someone away from a game than than to do that to them um it's and it's in your best interests to 
make sure people enjoy themselves, uh, especially if they're newer, because, you know, that's how you get them to stick around and that's how you grow your community. However, like yeah. if you're uh, an experienced competitive player and you're playing someone that's similar uh, experience, uh, then, you know, you need to play at the top of your game. And, and, and that's when all of these social contract points come in that we've been talking about communication and all that. And it's like establish the boundaries of the game early. Uh, you know, how are we treating this piece of terrain? Uh, how are we interpreting this rule? Um, can I fit this model through this space? All of these little things like that. Try to get a lot mm -hmm. of that stuff out early in the game. But there it is. Adjust your play based on your opponent. As, as someone who's a very competitive player, I will always throttle back a little bit if I'm playing an, a newer player. It also depends upon where you are in the tournament. Like if you're game one, game two, and you're playing a new person, and they're just like, hey, I'm having fun, or hey, I fluked out and won mm -hmm. my first game, then yeah, I'll, I'll throttle back because I don't want to lose you because you're helping grow the community. Um, I'll make sure that I'm going to win the game, right? Because I, I obviously want to win because I'm a competitive player, but I don't want to win at the expense of your fun and your long-term enjoyment in this hobby. So I might let things slide a little bit, be a lot jokey, um, do things that make you feel comfortable all the time, capping five objectives and picking up 12 points. Uh, you know, it doesn't, winning 12 nothing doesn't mean you're 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 not you're throttling down when you're throttling down you're not giving this person any hope that there's a chance that they can do anything right um you are just destroying them and you're smiling while you do it not a good thing to do yeah. back off you know um and there's another reason why we also have that 80 and 100 point tournament points, because uh, it helps establish expectations that if you're coming into an 80 point event, at no time should you be throttling down the hammer to destroy no. someone, at no time. And in the 100 pointers, if you're on game three, game four, I'm sorry, um, you have progressed to the point where you're playing me, and if I'm at 2-0 and and you're at 2-0, and I'm gonna give you my all. Um, and I will do my best to throttle it back a little bit, but I need the points at that point. But I mean, you can explain that clearly at the beginning of the game and say, look, this is a 100 point tournament, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm going mm -hmm. for the 100 points, you know, I want, uh, that means I need, I need to win this game as good as I can. I'm not going to screw you over. Uh, let's be fair and yeah. communicate, but, you know, no mercy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um, and I'll say about the competitive players playing competitive players, I have played some of the best players in the GBHL, and I've played uh, I've played all the best players in our league. Um, and let me tell you, um, competitive players, um, we have really enjoyable games against each other as long as we sort of establish in advance what the uh, guidelines are. Um, you know, and as we're going along, we just have a blast playing and it's not like two hyper or two really competitive people are going to have a miserable time playing. That's, that's a common misconception. Okay. I'm going to cut you short because we ought to move on to the next topic because it's so important. It's time management.
Alrighty, I'm gonna sum this up beautifully. Time management is the second most critical component of the social contract. And I'll get down to the brass tacks on this one. You have 50% of the allotted time of a particular game. So if a game is two hours long, you are going to play all of your actions within one hour. Because that's the social contract you're establishing because that establishes total and utter equalness in the game. I get an hour, you get an hour. Now, we're not like other other gaming systems where we establish chess clocks and that kind of thing. So there's a bit of gentleman's agreement when it comes to this, okay? So the first question you really, or the most important question you wanna ask yourself when you've sort of put together your army list is, can I operate the army I have chosen for this game slash tournament within the time limit given? i.e. if I have a two hour time limit, can I finish my entire game in one hour? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is this game or most of my games will not reach a natural conclusion, um, or I'll have to speed up the pace of play to an unreasonable amount to get it to reach a natural conclusion, then what you need to do is stop and say, what do I need to change about my army to be able to play this this tournament, either with the army I've chosen, or um, you know, or another army based upon the requirements. And you know, I'll give you an example. A lot of first timers who love the concept of Goblin Town slow play the heck out of it because they just don't realize you're moving a hundred models. And that eats up a lot of time. And so what ends up happening is your movement phase could be a half hour or 40 minutes for turn one, just because you're moving so many models and you're not used to it. Um, or you're thinking too much about where you're um, deploying your army. But there are some things you can do about um, you know, picking an army that might be too big for the, the, um, the time limit you've got. And that is you can either shrink it uh, by adding in more characters or more expensive models, or you can simplify it um, by adding in more cavalry um, or changing the types of um, the, the army type you're taking but keeping the same army list, like going with an all-cav Rohan list instead of a, an all-foot-mounted Royal Guard throwing spear list. Or... Uh, one of the ways in which to speed it yourself up is by practicing. So you're practicing with your setup, practicing moving on a kitchen table or on a floor, practicing with shooting in duels and figuring out which combats will yield traps or advantageous situations. And lastly, reading over each of the missions and determining a really basic strategy and a plan that'll go along with it. So you have a general idea of what you're gonna do prior to starting a game. Because a lot of our tournaments nowadays, they are four missions or six missions rolled randomly from the mission pack. Cool, but so if you have a general idea of what you're gonna do in every mission, stick to your general idea and then quickly tailor it on the fly based upon your opponent and their army. And by doing these things, you're really able to speed yourself up and you might be able to take that um, that model or that, that army that you really wanna take where otherwise you couldn't without some practice. Like I'll jump in here quickly mm -hmm. and like one of the points you have there is practice with your setup. Mm -hmm. One of the things, like I have a Shire army and uh, yeah, it takes forever to play it. 
And one thing I find is really helpful is like I made little bases to put my units on. So each unit has um, just kind of like an oval sort of terrain base. Mm -hmm. And what I do is I set them up on those terrain bases unit by unit. And when it comes to deployment, I can just pick up that entire base and put it on the table. Yep. Done. Right. And mm -hmm. then when it's my turn to move, I move them off the base and put that put that little oval base back on my tray. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people use the movement trays. I was also going to suggest that a uh, good call is movement tray, movement tray, movement trays, um, yeah. even for the first couple of turns, because moving 10 movement trays or eight movement trays is way better than moving 90 goblins. It's much, much quicker. And you'll yeah. actually be doing yourself a big, um, big benefit by allowing you to spend that time you want to be spending in the late turns uh, to get those traps, to get that intelligent play going. Uh, especially when you have horde armies. And your opponent isn't going to say, hey, those movement trays don't belong in this game. And you say, well, I can measure every model one at a time if you want me to. No, use the movement trays. Go exactly. Ahead. I'd be shocked if your opponent ever said no. Use the movement, use, don't use the movement trays. Um, and this is the other part to the time management. If you feel your opponent is unintentionally slow playing you, then the onus is on you to remind your opponent of the appropriate pace of the game and to get them to speed up um, when you see the pace slow down unnecessarily. And you can always ask probing questions that to, to help, you know, like, what are you trying to do here? What play are you trying to move so I can help you do that without you feeling nervous about quadruple measuring something? Yeah, we, we mentioned earlier too, or I did that, um, you know, don't keep moving your model back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But even worse than that in my book is like, let's say you have 10 models, okay, mm -hmm. and you move all 10 models and the 10th model you go to move it and you're like, you know what? I don't like what I've done, so I'm gonna move all nine of these models <laughs> back so that I can remove model number one. And it's like, are you kidding? It's like, I've actually seen people do this numerous times during a game and usually they move a model then maybe move two or three other models and then they decide they wanna change their mind and start moving all of the models back. Mm -hmm. And like, it totally destroys the, the nature of a miniature game because like position, as we've said, is everything. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe it's just me and the way I play, but like usually if I move something, it's moved. Exactly. No, I totally agree with that. Um, I've seen people move two or three models and then want to move them back. And I say, whoa, 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 we're, no, we're not doing that here. Well, the point being here is that, like, not only is it cool because of the position of the models, but it's like a huge waste of time. Yeah, because you're trying to figure out where you put the models originally. Um, and then the other thing you can do, which is very blunt, is to say, you know, hey, we're an hour into this two-hour game and it's turn two. We really need to speed this up. Yeah. And if you're repeatedly telling your opponent to speed up and they aren't, then you have one last resort if you're at a tournament, and that's to call a TO over and get them to watch your opponent. This will very rarely happen because your opponent generally gets it the first time. But if they don't, uh, well, call a TO over and have them clock watch. It's stupid and it sucks, but it's that difference between that and losing a game because you don't have enough time to be able to play out your game to a proper ending. Well, it's not even like the competitive, you're talking from the competitive side, mm -hmm. like I'm talking from the enjoyment of the game. Like I want to play the game. I, I don't want to sit here and watch you move your models. 
Um, like, I, I want my turn. Like, I want to play. I didn't come here just to play a game and play two turns. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is another segment we have, and it's called What Have I Got in My Pocket? Uh, and the idea here is that we are going to have like a spontaneous conversation. It is not rehearsed. It's not in the show notes. So nope. we're going to basically ask each other a question if we have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other person will have to answer the question uh, without... On the spot. The question is ahead of time. Yeah, on the spot. So now we have prepared this question ahead of time um, just for the sake of not humming and hawing about it. Uh, And I think the only only real requirement we had is the question has to be related to Lord of the Rings in some way, whether it be the books, the movies, or the game. Okay. Do you you want want to go first? I'll go first, sure. Uh, That means I'll ask you the question first. Let's just clarify that. Uh, So my first question to you is, or my question to you, I should say, is, if you could sit down for dinner with any one actor from the Lord of the Rings movies, who would it be and why? Oh my god. Um, That's right. With any Lord of the Rings actor. Lord of the Rings, not Hobbit. And it would be like present day, so like obviously some of them... No, no. Uh, it, it could be whenever. Be. You could pull Christopher Lee into that conversation. He'd be a little disembodied and might have something less for eat, to eat for dinner, but you could do it. Oh, I'm terrible about this kind of a question. <laughs> Who would it be? I'm all about the dwarves, so like I want to say... Um, I want to say Gimli, and I, like, I don't even know the actor's names. Is, oh, my God. Is it like... Jonathan uh, Rhys Davies or something like that. Well, he he's like a very famous actor. He's he done tons of roles. Um, I'm just going over the other characters in my mind because you got the whole Fellowship. Yeah. Um, there's the Hobbits. You got uh, Legolas. Uh, who else is in there that would be somebody that you would want to sit down and have dinner with? Sir Ian McKellen, Christopher Lee. Yeah. You know? I'm thinking about the women, though. Is there one of the women that... Was Kate nice? Blanchett. You've yeah. got Liv Tyler. Liv Tyler, yeah. No, mm. I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with uh, with Gimli. What did you say the actor's name was? Uh, I, I think it's Jonathan Rhys Davies. I'm going to go with him. Um, it is. It's John Rhys Davies. Yep. Simply because I know he is a huge Lord of the Rings fan so there would be tons to talk about in that like i know from reading about when he accepted the role he was like really disappointed that he the character he got was gimli oh really because yeah he he wanted to have a much more prominent character Mm -hmm. um but regardless of that um he he's a big fan so there'd be quite a lot to talk to him about in regard to lord of the rings plus he was in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, that's right. He was. Right. Yeah, so yeah, he's, yeah. he's in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So they're like, be able to talk about that. And, um, you know, lots of other movies, most of which I can't think of right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that's who I'm going to go for. Okay. And that's my answer. Mostly because you can talk about Lord of the Rings stuff and you can geek out together. That's right. Cool. That's right. Uh, okay, my turn. 
Okay, I'm getting back into the game. Okay. Okay. Um, and I'm my first question is to you, the competitive player, mm-hmm. out of the two of us anyways. Uh, so, okay, now all my stuff is context, right? So okay. bear with me as I try to spit this question out. Okay. Um, okay, so you're a competitive player. Yes. So, like, I imagine you measure your opponents based on skill, especially the ones that are in our league that you play you know over and over yeah okay so when you measure the skill level of another competitive player do you consider their ability to select a competitive list as part of that measurement or do you not consider that at all so if i were to gauge the full depth and breadth of a player's skill I would not consider an army list to be a part of that selection, specifically because of what you said. There are people who um, who use very aggressive competitive lists, um, but you can tell quite quickly that they are not uh, as adept at using them as a, a much more skilled opponent. Um, you know, I'll give a perfect example. Um, when you play, well, I, a perfect example of a game I played, I played against Damien O'Byrne from the GBHL at Nova, and he brought his, his Isengard. Uh, I don't know if this example works, but it was just, um, there was a moment in the game where he, I'm playing triple ring race on Felbeast back in the old edition with like a smattering of orcs and he's playing your typical Isengard with, um, you know, Saruman and Grima and, and a smattering of crossbow and Frizzerkerless, the standard stuff back then. And he tucked his Saruman behind um, a building and then dismounted him. But he's still within his lines, right? And I looked over and I saw what he was doing and I started to smile. And he looked at me and he said, thank you. It's so nice to see, uh, so nice to be able to play against a really competitive player. And there's those moments where you do something and your opponent reacts, maybe not by moving models, but they just sort of acknowledge what you're doing. And immediately it's as if two competitive players are acknowledging their skill. And so when you play against certain people who are entirely list dependent, there's not that acknowledgement. They, you start doing things and they don't know what you're doing. Or you'll, you'll catch them on a ruling or you'll catch them doing something that, they're, that belies their lack of understanding of like the upper echelons of the game or you'll make a comment, you know, where you say, um, you know, this game is easy to learn, but hard to master. And certain opponents will sort of hum and haw about that. And if you're humming and hawing about it, you're not a great player. I'm sorry, you're not, because it, it, is, it is a game that's hard to master. And so, yeah, no, I totally, a very long-winded answer, the TLDR is, um, I don't consider your list in terms of how skilled you are. Because right, I know- good answer. I, I know you, as a player and though you do say you are um a less competitive person than me and i d- 
disagree with that in so much that you are a really good player because you take armies that aren't super hardcore strong and yet at the same time you're podium you're, you're on the podium top three generally two three or even four more often than not and that's the skill of a really good player is someone well, that, like, that's the thing is like when i like i don't take those kind of hard-boiled lists um i tend to take all like green like usually all within the same uh faction but like if i'm in a tournament like i will always try to win mm -hmm. right even though i know i'm not playing like a super competitive i'll always try to win right no matter what and there is something to be said and i would love to capture this in a future episode and that is the competitive mindset and what i mean here as a real big nutshell um you, if you really want to win top table games, you have to have a competitive mindset. And that competitive mindset isn't during the games, not during the tournament. It's all the time. Like, when I'm playing in an event, a month before the event, I am imagining in my head how my list is going to work against the different armies that I expect to play against. Given our meta, given the types of lists that are that are being talked about on Facebook groups and all that stuff, I'm visualizing every single game I'm going to play. A month out, I'm doing that. Okay, I just figured out why I'm not winning tournaments because I don't practice and I don't visualize my games ahead of time. Good to know. Good to know. There you go. Okay, that's my very long-winded answer for your. Question. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Okay, well, I think that wraps up our segment of what have I got in my pocket. All right, and we are back with all that is gold does not glitter. And we've got some answers came in, Mr. Brock. We do, but to what question did we ask? So last time we posed the question... From the previous edition to this edition, mm -hmm. what units were the most improved from the Hobbit edition to the current Middle Earth edition? So that could be any unit, a hero, a war machine, a warrior, anything. Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of answers, mostly because I twisted a lot of arms in a very short <laughs> period of time. Um, but we did manage to get a bunch of answers. Mm -hmm. Shall I start? You shall. Okay. That's a great idea. Okay. So one, one of the ones I just mentioned there was war machines. And you could technically basically list every war machine because major change to war machines in, in the new edition um, with them all getting um, basically a, a, siege what do they call it? a siege veteran with, uh, with might and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, but Ronan was one of the guys that responded. Um, and Ronan being one of our younger but very competitive players. And he has listed the Avenger Bolt Thrower. Or yeah. as Jeremy Hunthor would call it, the Bolt Thrower. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. 
Um, so the reasons uh, he lists are it, like it's cheaper, efficient, better deployment rules. It's got might. It's really good at destroying infantry. And the last one, which I would completely agree with, is it's an auto-include in almost every Gondor army you see now. And I'm not sure if I've ever played a Gondor army in the new edition that didn't have one. Well, if you had played me, you would have played one that didn't have one. Because, not because I don't like them, but because I just haven't got mine painted up yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, mine is still in the blister, actually, as so well. So is mine. So, yeah. Um, so that was one, and he gave a second answer, and, you know, this would have been my go-to answer, uh, and it's a lot of people's answer, and it is, of course, alerts. Mm-hmm. And who can who can deny that massive overall buff um, got threes in all the right places, uh, maelstrom of battle special rule, uh, which is a really fantastic rule for his warband. So they can come on anytime they want, anywhere they want. It's an amazing rule. Um, it's why I always I like it. you always take him now mm -hmm. uh, in that army, and you give him you, you max out his warband just because because of that. Um, yeah, so he's an auto include now in 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 Isengard for sure. I, so that was that was Ronan. So I would also add to that he also has his own legendary legion now. Alerts the scouts. Yeah, well, I mean, that's brand new. That's, that is brand new. But it really showcases him uh, and sort of amps him up even further. Yeah, and is also, I think it's a fairly competitive force in the right hands, and uh, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun to play. Topic for another day. Actually, oh. there's already there's there's already stuff up on, on the the interwebs uh, about it. There um, is. I've already seen. Yeah, so it doesn't take long. We'll, we'll get to that in episode four, I guess. Anyways, don't worry about it. So my individual who sent some stuff to us is Taylor, uh, and he sent me four items. Uh, in least to best. So the first is Bulg. So we've seen a price drop of 200 points to 165, and he only lost two fate in the process. He also gained this nifty Morgul Arrows special rule, which is great for hunter orcs. And um, and you we've you've truncated these answers because oh yes. it's, it's some of the some of the guys have given like long descriptives of of why and which was fantastic but it ended up that there's too much content to read all of it so. we really appreciate everybody's yeah. thorough responses and keep them coming don't think we don't want them uh, but yeah. you know we do also have time limits we have to sort of maintain in these uh, in these episodes <laughs> so the next person he lists his third best is dane ironfoot which is a complete revamp. So oh, yeah, he's yeah. 160 points with the boar, which you always take the boar. Three's in all the right places, two-handed, burly, all that good stuff. He's got his 12-inch aura of auto-pass for his army, which is incredible. And, you know, he's also a cav option, which I think is um, very rare for dwarves, um, and it's pretty huge. Having well, those it's rare, it's rare for proper dwarves, not those Iron Hills posers. <laughs> that is true. I, whenever I see a Dane Ironfoot on the table, I'm always very concerned, to say the least. Let's go with that. Yeah. 
Uh, one of my favorites is Aragorn King LSR. He's his number two. Yeah, wow. All of his are really good. I know. Uh, so there was a points drop for Aragorn King LSR. I think he was 275 in the previous edition, and now he's considerably less. Uh, and he also picked up a six-inch banner that he benefits from. Um, and he was in my TGX winning army because having a hero that can do pretty much every heroic action and get a free point of might a turn and be able to wound everything on a four plus, yeah, you can't go wrong with that. You really 200, can't. 240 with the armored horse. See, there you go. This was a 35 point drop from the previous edition and he picked up a six inch banner on top of that, which is just crazy. Yeah. And his most improved pick, which I am super excited for because now I've owned one and I've converted it and painted it up, got rid of those wings because come on now, Tolkien never envisioned the Balrog to have any wings. So we see a 50-point drop and there's a slew of new rules. Like I, I 12-inch auto pass for his goblins. Um, he's a hero of legend. He also has uh, a set of blaze rules. So if he wounds something on a, on a six, he sets them ablaze automatically just because, you know, flaming swords are awesome. Uh, and he also, if he takes an instant death uh, wound, he only loses half of his starting wound value. Uh, and he's just an obscene amount of um, might, or sorry, obscene amount of will, crazy stats, and he's got magic resistance and harbinger of evil and terror to boot. You can never go All wrong right. with the Balrog. Those are four really good answers by Taylor, and that's Taylor H. Mm-hmm. Seeing as we've got we've got two Taylors in, in, do. in the in the replies. So um, next up, I've also got someone that gave four answers, and it's Father Justin, the one and only. Um, and he's actually got two warrior units in here, and the first one is the Palace Guard. Um, and honestly, I don't know a lot about this one because it's an elf and I rarely ever go near those things. Um, Come on point, now. It's a points adjustment, I guess, that went down. Mm-hmm. Um, inclusion of Elven Blade for free and plus one fight in range of Thranduil uh, and gets big buffs. Well, the, the, Elven, the Palace Guard was a little bit pricier in the previous edition and you also had to pay for his Elven Blade. Yeah, it's a point, but still a point is a point. Now they get the Elven Blade for free. Um, they're cheaper cost. They have the Bodyguard Special Rule, which they had previously. Uh, and if they're within three inches of Thranduil, they get plus one. I think it's plus one to fight. Mm-hmm. And I think they also get plus one to wound or something like that. So, yeah, uh, I could be wrong in the second part. Uh, but, yeah, no, they're, they're ridiculously powerful. Well, I do remember in the in the previous version, they were, like, cost prohibitive for what they were so you, you rarely ever saw them so yeah. maybe we'll be seeing more of those mm-hmm. and certainly one thing that we are seeing more of is the warrior of Minas Tirith the lowly warrior of Minas Tirith uh, shield wall rule and plus one courage so yeah so the shield wall rule comes from uh, it's their base rule they get pretty much for free and the plus one courage is for their army bonus now let me tell you i love the warriors of minas tirith because they do such a fantastic job like supporting minas tirith warriors with their fantastic lances (laughs) just destroy enemy armies they actually don't kill much of anything but they're just so resilient they just stand around. They're, they're the classic defense six wet blanket. 
Oh yeah, that when you have a strength three model, unfortunately in the current meta, you just are like <laughs> lightly grazing people's armor, and like you might see a kill every now and then, but that's more of yeah. a oh I killed something. It's they're they're the I'm gonna get in your way and just occupy your time while my the rest of my army destroys your army. Pretty much, basically, yeah. and I will shield, shield, shield. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay, and probably one of the most popular answers we had to this oh, yeah. question, Theoden, of course, just ridiculously improved over the last edition. Uh, Profiles completely revamped, uh, new stats, and plus one fight on the on the turn. Uh, models within twelve inches. So models in the models in the turn. Sorry. Plus one fight on the turn that Cav charges, and it's got a 12-inch aura. So that's really huge for them, because um, I believe their army bonus... Now, I may be wrong, I haven't stared at the Rohan book lately. It's a uh, Rohan army's list. It's either plus one fight for all of them, or if it's plus one strength, and the army bonus is the other one. But having those Royal Guard be fight five on the charge at strength yeah. four is crazy. Yeah, that is... That's crazy, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, another popular choice, which we had a, a couple people pick, mm -hmm. is the one and only Gandalf the White. Gandalf the White. Yeah, so all I've got here is two attacks. So yeah, just, Father Justin's zoomed in on the two attacks, which is big. Um, and also, don't forget the defense six. He's the only wizard on the good side that is defense six. Um, but the other thing I would sort of lean into for Gandalf the White is that he has one amount that has will and fate, which is very cool, Shadow Facts. And two, he has Fortify Spirit. He's got probably one of the largest spell lists in the entire game, but that includes Fortify Spirit. And let me tell you, Fortify Spirit on a wizard is insanely amazing because um, it blocks, it pretty much nullifies ring rates. Right. Well, you certainly see you certainly see a lot of of Gandalf the White now. That's for sure because you mm -hmm. do you see a lot of Minas Tirith now, and usually it's with Gandalf the White, right? Exactly. So I have an, an, a very well chosen answer from Mike uh, Mike S, and it is the King of the Dead, and I loved all the reasons why he picked him. So the King of the Dead took a huge revamp. Um, you know, might, will, and fate wise increased quite significantly. I think it was like he's one six three or one three six, something like that, in terms of might, will, fate. Um, and he picked up the Harbinger of Evil with his army bonus, uh, which makes the Army of the Dead incredibly strong, because essentially against odd, I think it's against even defense armies you get plus one to wound because of having the Harbinger of Evil. And that's a pretty big number because um, the Courage 4 and Courage... Courage 4 is fairly common, so dwarves. So for now, all of a sudden, your army of the dead is wounding dwarves on fours instead of sixes like everyone else. Um, so that Harbinger of Evil is pretty huge. Uh, plus he has... I don't know if he had it before, but he also has the instant kill weapon. And he synergizes really well with his heralds, who give him free heroic marches, or they spend their will to give heroic marches, and they, he also gets magic resistance from it, making him an extremely resilient character to sort of nullify. Yeah. yeah. 
and we, I think we talked about um, a little bit about this army in the in the first episode. Um, just a really good starter army now oh, yeah. too, because you can literally take the models out of the box set, which maybe you own or you can pick them up for fairly reasonable price, and then maybe buy the three hunters and you buy the box with the king and the dead and the two heralds and you're good to go. Like really, the only thing you're missing there is the cavalry if you wanted to buy some cavalry models. Pretty much. But, yeah, yeah, it's a real, it's a really easily collected mo- army, and it's like for a very affordable price. I mean, you could probably pick up a six hundred point army of the dead for less than a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. um, and if you wanted to spiral upwards to to a thousand points, again, what you're saying, the three hunters uh, and a couple of heralds, army of the king of the dead, and you're there for sub. $250, which is from Canadian. And and from a Lord of the Rings perspective, that's a very inexpensive 1,000-point army. All right. And then and then to finish this off, uh, we had a couple of people uh, jump in that have given answers that we, we've already talked about. So we had uh, Jordan, one of the, the founders of our uh, group here in Ontario, uh, the godfather himself. The godfather. Um, yes. Hail the Godfather. Uh, so he, he also gives Theoden and also the Balrog. So two very popular mm-hmm. popular answers. So hitting the nail on the head there. And then we had Adam from Blackfire Productions. Yeah. Um, and he, he, went, he came in with Gandalf the White as well. So another popular answer. It's a very strong character. Yeah. Um, we did have a couple of, so that, so that's kind of it. Did you want to add any yourself or I did. did you have any? So I, so, you know, in asking the question, we always like to get listener responses or, uh, twist people's arms. So they give us responses. Uh, and then we'd also sort of provide our own favorite. And for me, my favorite most improved has to be without a doubt Elrond. And the reason why I say Elrond is because they they took pretty much every one of his profiles and sort of mashed it together into one and then cut the points cost. So instead of, you know, let's go from his spells, you know, instead of nature's wrath and renew, he has wrath of Bruin and, and renew, uh, which effectively gives him uh, a heroically channeled nature's wrath every time he casts a spell. Uh, or if heaven forbid you're in water, you're going to be obliterated by his spell. Uh, the knockdown is huge because elves certainly can use it for the um, for the double strikes, and they can go two-handed with impunity. Then we jump into his, I think it's Foresight of the Eldar, or the Gift of the Eldar, something like that, which gives him D6 Foresight points, which he can use to modify the prior, his priority rule. And that right there is big, because elves aren't yeah. typically... They're not typically um, swimming in might. So being able to, to win priority roles um, in, in the mid-game is really nice. And also being able to lose a priority role is really key, especially when you're talking about that first engagement. Because yeah. if you can go second and they charge you, you have the ability to respond. And that right there is big and can win you games. On top of that... I don't recall if he had this previously, but it was, what is it, Hadafang? His sword, which gives him plus one to win against spirits, some of the most notable spirits, the Balrog, Sauron, and the Wraiths. And he's 
I think all of his other stats are fairly aligned, but he also picks up the, um, if you take Rivendell Knights in his Warband, he, they don't count towards bow limit. And on top of that, he is a hero of legends, so his warband size increased from 12 to 18, which is pretty big for elves, because the more elves you can take for the less characters, the bigger your army can get. So yeah, definitely my, my nod for the best uh, elven hero, or best and most changed hero. How about that, you? that is like a, a very long uh, description of all of his abilities, because... Yeah, he, he coming out of the gate with the new edition, you saw like him all of the time. Yeah. Uh, did he get nerfed or? He's gotten he got his Wrath of Bruin spell nerfed because it used to be six inches, which is obscene, and now I got right, it nerfed right, down right, to right, three. Right. Okay, yeah. But it's still really good. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you did you used to see him all of the time in the new edition and. Mm -hmm. I mean, not having played for a while now, still we're seeing him on a fairly regular basis um, coming up into COVID. But uh, we'll, we'll see after the, uh, hopefully after we start gaming again, if he's, he's still as prevalent or not. Like there's going to be so many new armies and legendary legions out there. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of different things when we start gaming. Now, I know just before we uh, started recording, you had also mentioned another one, which was Guahir. Oh, Guahir, that's right. Guahir right. took a it took a huge points jump. Well, it wasn't it points jump? It took a, I would say, most improved jump. He got threes in all the right places, where I think previously he was either 1-1-1 one, 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 or 2-1-1. One, one. Yeah, I, I've played with him before in the old edition, and just, like, very frustrating and difficult to use with only, I believe he only had one might. Pretty before. sure, yeah. It was like there wasn't a lot of shenanigans you could pull with him just mm -hmm. having one might. Plus, if you run a pure eagles list, a pure eagles list, which was doing quite well early uh, early meta, uh, he brings you get the plus one strength on the charge, which is nice because you get the strength seven on the charge, which destroys most heroes. But then, uh, as some people have found, the Guahir Lothlorien combo with Galadriel and the Mirror is quite quite nasty. Where mm -hmm. you take uh, Guahir and you, you pick up the mirror because Guahir can carry it as if it were a light object. And then every turn, uh, you just replenish Guahir's fate back up to full. So all of a sudden, he's a three wound, three fate hero. And if you can't do all six wounds to him to guarantee the kill, he just replenishes his fate back up to full the next turn. Right, right. Cool, cool. Yeah. So that that one was kind of yours because you you mentioned it. I just kind of stole it right from under you before you were looking there. That's okay. Because um, I, I don't really have any answers myself. Because like I, I, you know, I, I play the armies I like, and, and you know the the one army I play that there was a major improvement in somebody was Lurts. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's like so obvious. Um, but I will throw one out there, and I, like I don't know if this would really even qualify, but for me it, it does. Um, and it, it's on the small side, it's Warriors, and it's it's in Khazad-dum, one of my armies that I play, and it's the Dwarf Ranger. Now, um, again, uh, like, yes. not, not, not a huge improvement by any means, and maybe doesn't belong in this list, but like, like I play a lot now with this model, whereas before, never hardly used it, um, not much at all, because mm -hmm. in, in the previous edition, 
um, it was seven points, but then it's two good weapons, the dwarf longbow and the throwing axes, both cost three points. So, like, you're looking at ten points, or if you want to give them both of those weapons, you're looking at 13 points, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it's way too much. Um, now they went up by one point base cost, but those weapons both went down by two. They're one point now. Um, so, like, I often field, like, entire armies of these guys <laughs> now because that combined with the the change in the rules for throwing weapons um, and also the change within Balin, like, he now got the long beard rule, like, use your will to re-roll your priority. Mm-hmm amazing combo and like you can bring these guys on mass and give give one third of them uh dwarven longbow and throwing weapons and it's a 10 point guy very reasonable um and oh my god like these guys char these guys getting the charge and you're basically your entire army is throwing axes it is it is it can be overwhelming if you do well on one roll mm-hmm. of uh, like one turn of uh, of charging. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, like I just wanted to mention that because like for me that that's one of the things I've noticed um, that I am taking a lot more in one of the armies that I play. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's just sort of like the corsairs of Umbar, right? There's seven points and they automatically come in with throwing daggers included. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, throwing daggers must be like strength two or strength one. But then when I looked it up today, I'm like, wait, there's strength three? Yeah. That is insane for a seven-point model. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like that's the thing. I never mentioned it, but like for dwarf rangers, they're three plus shoot. So like when you're you're charging in three plus shoot with a strength three weapon, mm-hmm. like on every guy in your army basically, yeah. um, it, it makes people really want to stay back from you. Mm-hmm. Also, you're almost like, to, to quote uh, 40K for a minute, it's like you're firing a Space Marine Bolter when you're charging in against like a Goblin Town army. That threes to hit, the fours to wound. Mm-hmm. And you just, you're almost, I wouldn't say doubling, but you're definitely significantly increasing your kill on that first charge against those really low defense armies. Even against a defense five army, um, you'd be surprised at how many throwing axes you t- uh, will, will kill something. And yeah. for the cost, you, your return on investment is in the hundreds of percent. Like the one thing that I was taking this ranger army for was we, at one point, like in, in the current edition, we're seeing a lot of goblin town for a while and mm-hmm. hunter orc type stuff. Um, devastating against those armies like if you if you know you're playing against something that's defense five or lower they're in big trouble because you're all those (laughs) all those strength three throwing weapons it is nasty Uh, certainly not like a top tier army but it's like one of the ones i like to play with anyways i've seen you do quite well with it let's just go with that they do all right yeah um we did get so all of those answers we've we've just gone through right now is is me sort of reaching out and saying hey guys uh, <laughs> help, us, help us out here on our first one um but we did actually get um a couple of emails that were completely legit uh and i won't go read all of them because they're both of them are quite lengthy but um do you mind if i just read a little bit of this before we start what is the question for next week oh you want to go right to the question well i mean we have to finish uh, up the sure, segment let's, let's go, Come let's, on, go now, to the, let's go to the question that's reasonable 
okay. So the question for, for next week, and Drew will give you our email address after I read this. Um, and it's a straightforward question. What do you think is the most competitive faction in the game, assuming no allies? So, Ooh, uh, of course, you can be a legendary legion if you want or not. Um, so there you go. That's about as straightforward as it gets. I like it. And our email address is North of the Shire Podcast One, the number one, at gmail.com. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, now let me scroll all the way back up to the top. Uh, okay, so so the very first email that uh, North of the Shire ever received was from Taylor M. And we're, we're not reading everybody's full name just because we don't know if everyone's okay with it. So mm -hmm. Taylor M., and you know who you are from up north here in Ontario. Hi, guys. Thanks for putting together this new podcast. Nice to see something more local to Ontario, especially since the meta here is much different than we see in other countries and on other podcasts. Oh, interesting. That's very true. Uh, I don't have an answer for the new question about best updated profile, since this is the only edition I have played outside collecting and painting. That said, I did have some thoughts about uh, the model that got nerfed the most, so that was like last time's question, um, not through the new edition change, but through one of the FAQs that GW put out. Uh, that model is the cave troll, mm. specifically the cave troll that you find in the Angmar list and how it interacts with the shade. Yes, I know people like to hate on the shade, but I think it's uh, a fitting model for pure Angmar, and of course it is. Uh, but people were bringing it in as Red Alliance for its debuff ability, which made them make a change uh, to how it works with the keywords affecting all models within range except those models with the Angmar keyword. So there you go. What, what do you have to say about that? Oh, uh, the problem is there's a lot of models that are incorporated into multiple army lists. And they haven't made uh, like a, a grandiose or sweeping FAQ change to say that if a model is included in multiple uh, army lists, it count it has the keywords for multiple army lists. Um, so unfortunately, the cave troll, which is currently in the Moria army list, I believe, uh, has the Moria keyword. So when you include it in an Angmar list, it has a Moria keyword and not an Angmar keyword, and thus actually is hindered by the shade's ability, which is pretty terrible because having a cave troll in the Angmar list um, really gave you a lot of hitting power because there wasn't anything in the game that um, the cave troll couldn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with without, let's say, that here burning might to try and um, get above it because of the negative one. Now, because the cave troll is also affected by the minus one debuff, uh, it has to hope that its fight value is higher than hero's fight values. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I don't really get that because, you know, we have orcs that are now Angmar orcs, so it's not like they didn't think of it. So to me, it seems like the, the choice of, of, of doing what they've done is, is deliberate. Um, I think I it's know. a bit of an oversight. Um, I think mostly they didn't want to duplicate uh, profiles across all the different army lists just because I think that would have bloated the book far too much. And the books were pretty thick to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. But 
by giving them the keywords, I think it starts to change how certain models and certain units are used. Just to give an example, the Hasharan in um, uh, are, are native to Harad, but if you put them in the Corsairs of Umbar, which they can be commanders in the Corsairs list, uh, they don't count as a Corsair keyword, or they don't have the Corsair keyword, so they don't actually get to use the Backstabber special rule. So if you gave them that, it would really amp up their, um, their playability. So I don't know what's the plan for this. Um, mm. So yeah, it's hard to say. Right, right. But the cave troll um, definitely got hit, though. Yeah. So really great email, and he goes on to talk about talk more about that. Uh, so so thank you very much uh, for that email. Thanks so much, uh, Taylor. Taylor, really appreciate it. And also had another email from Robert K. Um, and he says. Hi guys, I really enjoyed your first episode. I was able to follow almost all of it. The only parts that gave me trouble were when you made references to something so obvious it didn't need to be stated. I am completely new to the game and have only made it as far as picking up the Battle of Pelennor Fields box set. Okay. Um, uh, obviously, I can't answer your question because I have no experience with the old system. That said, I gained valuable insights from your episode. So he goes on to uh, talk a little bit more about his, his background, which is great. And then he finishes off by saying, I'm not sure what your plan is going forward, but I know of at least one listener who would appreciate an episode or segment on the basics if that's not your audience i still think uh, i will get a lot from your show and thank you robert very much for the email and that is an excellent idea we should we should definitely consider uh talking about the basics uh at least to some degree so well my my our idea i think um is first to talk about the um, higher level um, concepts of playing a game in general, sort of around um, the social contract, but also around sort of the ethics of gaming and mindsets and that kind of thing. And then we'll dip into probably a, an episode on, to some, to some extent, on basics um, and sort of then go from there into um, the next area that we want to talk about. So I definitely think that a an episode on the basics is something that will come up to some degree. Well, that that may be your idea, but that's not necessarily my idea. That sounds really highfalutin to me. I, I I'm totally good with talking about basics. Excellent. You know, because that's where I shine. I, I can handle the basics. <laughs> it's 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 all that complex jibba jabba that you go on about. It's like half of that stuff's over my head too. Oh come uh, on! No, but anyway, great great email and really good to hear from. from Thanks so Robert. much, Robert. So, so thank you very much there. All right, so let's wrap up this episode. Um, anything to say for yourself, Mister Drew? No, I'm. I, I will say this actually. <laughs> I, I do have something I want to say. Two episodes in the bag. Two episodes, yeah, and, and it's it's one of those oddities. Like I'm, I, I think we filmed the bulk of this episode in early August, and here we are in the last day of September, yep. <laughs> finishing it out. Um, 
so anyways we're we're into the fall here now and uh i'm gonna read just a very short uh segment from uh lord of the rings and this is from the chapter three's company in the fellowship of the ring and just because we filmed most of the next episode already i know i I do talk a little bit about this chapter Mm -hmm. in the in the next episode so this section here is where um they're they're still at bag end getting ready to leave um frodo is all concerned because because gandalf is overdue quite overdue Mm-hmm. At first, Frodo was a good deal disturbed and wondered often what Gandalf could have heard, but his uneasiness wore off, and in the fine weather he forgot his troubles for a while. The Shire had seldom seen so fair a summer or rich an autumn. The trees were laden with apples, honey was dripping from the combs, and the corn was tall and full. Autumn was well underway before Frodo began to worry about Gandalf again. September was passing, and there was still no news of him. 